Again, thank you for joining us at Prairie View. We're very happy that you're worshiping here with us today. Well, we begin a new sermon series this morning in the book of Philippians. And if you've been a Christian for long, and even if you're not a Christian, you probably know that the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter, is a key figure in the Christian faith. After all, the guy did write two-thirds of the New Testament. But do you really know Paul? Not just the things he wrote or some easily regurgitated facts about his life, but do you really know him? Do you know the desires of his heart? Do you know the focus of his mind? Because Paul's letter to the Philippians, and even more specifically, the passage we read this morning, they give us a glimpse into who Paul really is. They give us a glimpse into Paul's heart and mind. The book of Philippians is often referred to as a friendship letter. And as we read, it's not difficult to see the intimate relationship that Paul had with these people, the deep friendship they had developed. Now, when you read a letter from one close friend to another close friend, you can learn a lot about the author. And that's certainly true with Paul's letter to the Philippians. And one of the refrains that you'll hear over and over again, one of the consistent themes of the letter, is joy. Paul tells the Philippians that even in dire circumstances, he has much reason to rejoice. And as he writes this letter, he's not just rejoicing himself, but he's reminding the Philippians and reminding us of our reason to rejoice too. So open up to Philippians chapter 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all that you've given to us. Thank you for the privilege that we have of coming here and worshiping. Thank you that another Sunday has come, and today is not Easter Sunday. And yet we still celebrate the resurrection. We are still grateful for the crucifixion. So, Father, even though Easter may have passed, even though decorations are taken down, even though we might not be dressed as well as we were last week, we are incredibly grateful for your son. And we still celebrate the resurrection every single week. Father, thank you for this letter to the Philippians that we read today. Thank you for Paul that you called him, you saved him, and you gave him a mission. And we can learn so much from him, so much of what we have in in your word is from Paul's writing. So, Father, I pray that you'd be with us as we read this letter over the next several weeks. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for your son. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the city of Philippi was a small Roman colony, and as a Roman colony, it was meant to look, feel, and function like Rome in many different ways. And because it was a Roman colony, even though the city was small, it was still extremely important. The city consisted of mostly Greeks and Romans, many with military backgrounds, There likely weren't many Jews to speak of in Philippi. Now, Paul had been to the city of Philippi before, roughly 10 years before he wrote 
this letter that we start this morning. And we see that recorded in Acts chapter 16, Paul's visit to Philippi. Paul was with a man named Silas at the time, partnering in ministry. And Paul and Silas were led to Philippi by the Holy Spirit. And when they arrived, they met a group of God-fearing women praying by the river. Again, there weren't many Jews there, so there does not appear to have been a synagogue. So they went and prayed by the river. Now, one of those women in particular comes to believe the gospel. A woman named Lydia, who will be very significant in the book of Philippians, and we'll see her again in the coming weeks. But then not much later, we see a slave girl possessed by a demon. A girl whose owners treat her like a circus sideshow just to make money. But when Paul exercises the demon from the girl, her owners are angry that they've lost their source of income. And in their anger, they accuse Paul and Silas of disturbing the peace, trying to undermine Roman life. They are corrupting Roman culture with their foreign customs and practices. As a result of this accusation, Paul and Silas find themselves in prison. And so we pick up in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So here's that first moment where you see Paul's joy. The joy that we spoke of a few minutes ago in Acts chapter 16. Because as Paul sits in prison in Philippi, he doesn't whine or complain. He doesn't rattle a stick against the prison bars. He doesn't play blues on his harmonica. He doesn't try to arrange for a nail file to be smuggled in with a cake. He sings hymns to God. As he sits in a prison cell, he praises God. And when an earthquake strikes, Paul is the one who talks the jailer off the ledge. And that jailer eventually comes to believe the gospel as well. Now you have to think that Paul's joy had something to do with that, don't you? That jailer heard Paul singing. He heard Silas praising God while they were in chains. And you have to think that that jailer must have been thinking to himself, what is wrong with these people? How in the world are they joyful when they're sitting here in this cell? Why is it that these people are praising God when God has clearly abandoned them to rot in this prison? 
And that joy that Paul had, that faith, that worship, and that praise, it becomes contagious. To the point where the jailer simply has to know, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Sirs, what in the world could possibly give you a joy like this? And as he writes this letter, letter to the Philippians, roughly ten years later, Paul's going to need the same joy now that he had back then. Because once again, Paul finds himself in chains. Just like he was in Acts chapter 16, likely under Roman house arrest. Now, I've never been in prison. I've never been under house arrest. But I assume there's not a whole lot worth celebrating while you're there. Probably not a lot to be joyful about. So how in the world can Paul possibly be joyful? What does he have to celebrate? Well, we start to see it in Philippians chapter 1. Starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The church in Philippi appears to be pretty well established. Paul does write to overseers and deacons, implying that they already have some type of leadership structure in place. And Paul says that he's grateful for their partnership and their friendship. He's referring to the many years that they've been serving alongside him. Many years of preaching the gospel to anyone and everyone who will listen. But he's also talking about their personal support for him. We'll read later in the letter that they sent a gift to Paul while he was under house arrest, and he is very much appreciative for that. But we can see how warm and how positive Paul's words are. He says he holds them in his heart. He yearns for their affection. This is clearly a church that Paul loves. Paul admires this church, and you could even say that Paul is proud of this church. But that doesn't prevent him from offering up a prayer. Even though this church is well established, even though Paul clearly loves them and clearly admires them, he's still praying for them. He's praying that they would grow and mature in holiness. We saw that prayer in verses 9 through 11. Look at it again. Paul says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you ever found yourself wondering how you can pray for our church, how you can pray for Prairie View right now, those verses would be a great place to start. Pray the same prayer for our church that Paul prayed for the Philippians, that our love would abound more and more, that we would abound with knowledge and discernment, that we would approve what is excellent and conversely learn to disapprove what is not excellent. Pray that we would be pure and blameless and holy for the day of Christ. Pray that we would bear fruit as a church for the glory and praise of God. But then Paul continues, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What's he referring to? What has happened to me? Well, he's referring to his imprisonment. Verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul makes a strange argument here. Here we are in the very first chapter of the letter. And he starts giving reasons why his imprisonment is a good thing. Now, how can that possibly be good? What good could possibly come from Paul under house arrest? It's ironic, given the circumstances, that Paul seems to be the one encouraging the Philippians. He's the one in chains, and yet he's reassuring them. You would think it would be the other way around. But this right here shows the joy that Paul has. Or, as he says in chapter 4, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. The joy that Paul has is obvious because Paul can sit back and he can look at the chains around his ankles and his wrists. And he can say, you know what? This is kind of a good thing. The imperial guard is hearing about Christ. Brothers in Christ are being emboldened to share the gospel without fear. Now that I think about it, it's kind of a good thing that I'm here. That is unspeakable joy. That doesn't make any sense. Paul is rejoicing that more people are hearing about Christ. And that matters more to him than sitting in prison. That brings him more comfort than his chains bring him discomfort. Paul is so consumed with the advancement of the gospel that he can view his own suffering with joy. Paul is so consumed with more people hearing about Christ that he's willing to sit in jail if that helps God's cause. Think about that. Think about that joy that you see from Paul. And that being said, not everything is rosy. 
Paul's not just putting on a happy face and pretending everything's okay. He acknowledges that life is a little bit rough right now. Because not only is he in prison, but other preachers of the gospel are relishing it. Think about that. Brothers in Christ are happy that Paul is in prison. Not because more people are hearing about Christ. But Paul says they're happy because of envy and rivalry. They're enjoying seeing Paul suffer. And they're hoping that their evangelistic success outside of prison will discourage Paul in prison. That is a bad attitude, isn't it? But they didn't take into account what we just talked about. And their attempts to discourage Paul and their attempts to get back at Paul for whatever it is that they have against him, they didn't take into account Paul's joy. They didn't take into account his obsession with the advancement of the gospel above all else. That's why their attempts to discourage him, their attempts to frustrate him, they're not going anywhere. In fact, Paul says that, you know what? They might be preaching out of pretense. They might be preaching just to get back at me. They might be preaching just to discourage me. But you know what? That's kind of a good thing, too. Because more people are preaching about Christ. And more people are hearing about Christ. That right there gives you that window into Paul's heart and mind. As we look at Paul in Philippians chapter 1. After years of service to the Christ, years of service to the gospel, many times being beaten, many times being persecuted, just about being killed, sitting in chains, we see a man who has no vain ego. We see a man with no selfish ambition. We see a man with no craving for the spotlight. Paul is sitting there, and he just wants the gospel to advance. Period whether it's through him or whether it's through his opponents. All he wants is for more people to hear about Christ. And as long as that's happening, Paul has reason to rejoice. Now, as we sit here, in much more comfortable circumstances than Paul, as we read the letter to the Philippians, we can't help but ask ourselves, do my heart and my mind look like that? Do my heart and my mind look like Paul's heart and Paul's mind? Do we have that same single-minded desire for the advancement of the gospel above all else, even if that means someone else gets the glory? Are we willing to put our own egos aside and rejoice when Christ is being preached? Do we have the same joy and the same confidence in Christ in the face of our own suffering? I've recently been reading a book called The Valley of Vision, and it's a collection of prayers from the Puritans, some of the first Christians in America. And one of the prayers says this, Sovereign God, your cause, not my own, engages my heart. And I appeal to you with greatest freedom to set up your kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify yourself and I shall rejoice. For to bring honor to your name is my sole desire. I adore you that you are God. 
and long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Lord, use me as you will, but promote your cause. Let your kingdom come. Let your blessed interest be advanced in this world. I think Paul would agree with that prayer. And I pray that we do as well. And I pray that God would give us the heart and mind that Paul had. Hearts and minds consumed not with our own advancement, not with our own comfort, but with the advancement of the gospel above everything else, even if and when that calls us to discomfort, even if or when that calls us to suffering. Let's pick up in verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Prison and other preachers who dislike him, envy, rivalry. To be honest, that's not really the worst thing that Paul has on his mind. That's not the only hardship that Paul is facing. To be totally honest, Paul's got more pressing concerns than that Roman guard chained to him all day long. He's got more pressing concern than those preachers trying to discourage him. He's preparing to have his life on the line. He's getting ready to defend himself before Nero, the Roman ruler, a man who historically was no friend to Christians. The historian Tacitus writes this. Nero was a corrupt, wicked Roman ruler, one of the worst Caesars to ever live. And at one point, Nero wanted to do some new construction in the city of Rome. And so he decided that those buildings that are getting in the way, that I just can't seem to find a way around, it'd be really convenient if those buildings kind of just burned to the ground. So Nero started a fire. The problem, of course, is that the fire got a little bit out of control, and it destroyed much of the entire city of Rome. And when people started to put two and two together to figure out that Nero was the one who started the fire, well, what did Nero do? Well, naturally, he blamed the Christians. Tacitus writes, No human effort, no princely largesse, nor offerings to the gods could make that infamous rumor disappear that Nero had somehow ordered the fire. Therefore, in order to abolish that rumor, Nero falsely accused and executed with the most exquisite punishments those people called Christians, who were infamous for their abominations. The originator of the name, Christ, was executed as a criminal by the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, 
And though repressed, this destructive superstition erupted again, not only through Judea, which was the origin of this evil, but also through the city of Rome, to which all that is horrible and shameful floods together and is celebrated. Therefore, first those were seized who admitted their Christian faith. And then using the information they provided, a vast multitude were convicted, not so much for the crime of burning the city, but for hatred of the human race. And perishing, they were additionally made into sport. They were killed by dogs by having the hides of beasts attached to them. Or they were nailed to crosses or set aflame. And when the daylight passed away, they were used as nighttime lamps. Nero gave his own gardens for this spectacle. That's the man that Paul is getting ready to stand before. That's the man that Paul is preparing to defend Christ before. That's the man who Paul is going to have to face down and say that he believes in Christ. Paul's life is very much on the line. And as he prepares to defend himself before Nero, Paul knows that one of two things is going to happen to him. Number one, he could live, Nero could spare him, and God could use him to do more ministry. Paul knows that that would benefit the Philippians, and he's confident that that's what God is going to do. But Paul also knows that it's just as likely that Nero could have him killed. Paul's life could end at any moment. But Paul says, you know, to be totally honest, I'd kind of prefer to die. Because then I could be with Christ. Now think about that. Paul, when faced with the possibility of imminent death, says he'd kind of like to die. He doesn't say he wants to die so that his suffering can be over. He doesn't say he wants to die so that he can get out of house arrest. His motivation is to be in the presence of Christ. Paul is so in love with Christ. Paul is so consumed by Christ that if he had it his way, he'd kind of like to get killed by those dogs that Nero sicked on him. He'd kind of like to get crucified. He'd kind of like to get lit aflame. Because, yes, it would hurt in the short term, but I'd get to go be with Christ. Now, Paul's not advocating for suicide. He's not advocating for death by cop. He's simply saying that if God allows him to die, if that's what God intends, he's good with that. Because then he'd get to be with Jesus. Paul has completely utterly, humbly, faithfully resigned himself to the will of God, whether that means life or death. Now, how can he do that with such great peace? How can he possibly do that with joy? Well, because like we mentioned last week, Paul knew that Christ's tomb was empty. And so Paul also believed that one day his tomb would be empty as well. And in addition... Paul knew that Christ will be honored either way, by life or by death. And Christ's honor, Christ's glory, is what Paul wants more than anything. Now, there's much more to discuss 
in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Though this church appears to be quite mature, well-established, much more than the churches in Galatia or Corinth, for example, that doesn't mean it's a perfect church. Paul still has instruction to give them. There are still warnings that they must heed. But for today, we can focus on getting to know the heart and mind of the man who wrote this letter. There's an old saying that says, someone can be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. Well, Paul was not so heavenly-minded to the point of being no earthly good. It's true that Paul wanted to die and be with Christ. In that sense, he was heavenly-minded. But he was also willing to faithfully focus on the mission that God gave him here. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 24, Paul again knows that things are not looking good, that persecution awaits him. But he writes this in that verse. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul did not account his life as precious to himself. He gave it completely to God. I pray that would be true of us too. And as another old saying goes, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Well, that's not true of Paul either. Paul desperately wanted to be in heaven with Christ, but he was also quite willing to lay down his life for Christ's cause. Back to that prayer from the Valley of Vision. A few lines later, we read this. Oh, bring in great numbers to Jesus. Let me see that glorious day and give me to grasp for multitudes of souls. Let me be willing to die to that end. Now again for now. We can't help but be challenged by Paul's heart and Paul's mind. We can't help but ask whether we have that same passion for the gospel, that same humility, that same willingness to suffer for Christ in our own hearts, in our own minds. And perhaps that's a good prayer to end with this morning. Pray that God would shape our hearts, shape our minds, and as a result, shape our lives to look more like Paul's does in Philippians chapter 1. I pray that we could say with a straight face that for us, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray that every single one of us would leave here willing to lay down our lives for Christ. Because whether in our life or in our death, Christ will be honored. And I pray that that is our sole desire above anything and everything else no matter what that requires of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, the things he did, the things he said, the things he wrote. But Father, none of what he did or said or wrote, none of that was truly original to him. As we read, he was guided by your Holy Spirit when he did his mission work in the book of Acts. That his hand was guided by your Holy Spirit as he wrote your word. 
I pray that we would look more like Paul, not just because we see him as someone to be admired, someone to be emulated, but rather because you would be changing our hearts, you would be changing our minds, and as a result, changing our lives. I pray that we would fall in love with your son, Jesus, the same way Paul did. I pray that we would devote every ounce of our being, every breath in our lungs to bringing you honor, to sharing Christ with a world who desperately needs him. I pray that you would give us joy, that when we face trials, when we face hardships, whether they're as difficult as Paul's or not, I pray that we would sing, that we would offer praises to you, to the point that the people around us might think we're crazy. People around us might think that it's illogical that we could possibly be joyful in circumstances like ours, and yet I pray our joy would be contagious. Thank you for the cross and the empty tomb. That's the reason that Paul could do the things he did and say the things he said and write the things he wrote and rejoice in prison. Because Paul knew that a cross in Jerusalem once contained your son and that a tomb in Jerusalem once contained your son's body. But that that cross has been taken down and that tomb is empty and that we have hope not just now but in eternity. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for this day and we thank you for your son. We ask all these things in his name. We're going to stand and sing one more song. And then after we're done with that song, we'll have our closing prayer. So we ask that you stand with us as we sing. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be
You know, the Apostle Paul, as he's sitting in that jail cell, and he found himself so joyful and praising God and singing back in Acts chapter 16, I like to think that Paul's joy didn't come from some cutesy trend about, you know what, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to tell myself that today is going to be a good day. I don't think that was Paul's source of joy. I think it was something far deeper than that. It was knowing that Jesus has died, knowing that Jesus has risen, knowing that Jesus has ascended, and knowing that Jesus will return. And you could look at Philippians chapter 1, or you could hear a sermon like this, and you could think, man, I just want to be more like Paul. Paul's the hero of the story. I wish I could be more like him. And, and that's true. There's certainly things to be admired about Paul. And Paul says, emulate me as I emulate Christ. He says that to the Corinthians. But at the same time, Jesus is the real hero of the story. In chapter 3 of Philippians, Paul will go a little bit deeper about his background, how he came to know Christ and his conversion back in Acts chapter 9. And Paul talks about how he was a very different man before he came to know Christ. He was not the joyful man that we read about in Philippians chapter 1. He was a persecutor. He was a hater of Christians. He was an opponent of God, even though he didn't realize it at the time. The whole point is that Paul's not the real hero. The reason Paul could be so joyful was not because Paul was so good. The reason Paul could be so joyful is because he had an encounter with the risen Christ. That he was knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus. That he was called by the grace of God. And so this morning, if you have not had that same encounter with the risen Christ, if you have not felt the grace of God in your bones, I pray that you talk to one of our elders this morning. They'd be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions, happy to talk to you about our church, happy to talk to you about anything that you've seen or heard here this morning. So again, talk to those guys as we sing this last song. We're grateful for you worshiping with us this morning, and we hope you have a great day. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. Father, again, as we leave this place, I pray that you would give us an absolute tunnel vision on the advancement of your gospel. That we would find our joy, that we would find our purpose, that we would find our callings, not in the stuff that this world throws at us, that, that may be good at some level, but that we would find our joy in something that bears fruit in eternity. And that's the advancement of your gospel. I pray that we would preach your gospel to anyone who would hear us, in the same way that Paul said that brothers were emboldened to preach the gospel without fear because of his imprisonment. I pray that you would embolden us to preach the gospel without fear. So, Father, as we leave here, let us be your representatives. Let us be heralds to a world announcing what it is that you've done through Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.